The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. very much, uh, Meg, for all that you do. I invite your attention this morning to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, or if it's been a couple weeks, we are wrapping up our series on the Ten Commandments. We started actually 10 weeks ago. This is the 11th week of the study, and we'll wrap that up. And say, Darren, what are we doing from here? Well, we're back to the basics this year. You know that. As you've been a part of us, and so we will be going through the book of Matthew, actually. I've changed from John to Matthew over the Christmas narrative, back to why the things we believe about Christ and Christmas are important to us, not just during a season, but also during the whole entire year. And many of you have asked graciously as you turn there how my wife is doing. She's up front here. Uh, If I suddenly run out of here, uh, it's probably because my wife is in labor, okay? So uh, if we run out of here, Matt or Gilbert, you're in charge. Just take it over. I asked three deacons to preach, and none of them said they would. So uh, we're going to turn to our youth guys. Uh, Nick, you're not allowed yet. You're, you're not 19, so uh, I'm just kidding. But uh, in all seriousness, <laughs> and the grandparents affirm. Uh, but, you know, thank you for your prayers for us. Uh, many of you have asked. I'll try and do one rifle shot answer with this, but... Uh, She's due really any time. She's slowed down a little bit, love. I think think that's fair to say. Uh, So if we just run out of here, that's why, okay? Uh, It's my bad singing plus my bad preaching. I'm just getting out of here, and we're going to go have a baby. So we'll figure it out. But uh, thank you for your prayers. We appreciate that very much. And uh, thank you all so much for everything that you do. Well, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and we'll finish this up today, and thank you for also dealing with my sort of head cold thing that's going on. I'm sure you don't have that this time of year. It happens, but God is good. You know, uh, I don't know how you feel about aging, but uh, as we have another baby, I think, boy, I feel old already, Uh, trying to get kids' pants on and diapers, and yes, you have to wear your shirt. Yes, you have to wear pants and a diaper. You know, go to bed and eat with a fork and all these types of things, but I believe Dave Barry, who's a comic columnist for the New York Times, said it this way. Uh, There's going to be a picture of an older lady coming up here, but he said almost half of the people over 40 today in America believe they look younger than they are. And this says something important about older Americans. We must have terrible eyesight. And that's very, very true. (laughs) Aaron Fullerton, another columnist, says some of my proudest moments have been when my website password told me in my old age that I had a very strong password in my forgetful memory. You know, even in our old age or young age, we covet, don't we? We wish we were something else than we already are. We wish we were stronger than we were. We wish we were smarter than we always have been. We wish we were better looking or whatever it is. And those are silly things. But as we study this last commandment, thou shalt not covet. It is amazing, once again, as we study God's word, how many of us feel better about ourselves and we covet those good old days, remember? Many of you have pictures from high school where you didn't have an ounce of fat on you and you looked like a bodybuilder. Remember those days, guys? How much do you bench? I bench 500 pounds, you know, all those great things. Well, that's not always possible. And frankly, as you know, those old days aren't always the best, are they? They aren't. They show us that those days are past and God can use us even in our state of things. But in our hearts, 
what these commandments have shown us over and over, if you've been with us, is that they show us that we often long for things different than how they are because we are people who want things how we want things to happen. That's why Romans chapter 7, as you'll see on the screen, says this. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Paul says, no, God forbid. I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law has said, thou shalt not covet. If you haven't gotten the picture the last several weeks, it all comes back to the heart. We've said several times that these commandments are not check marks for you to do and be a better person with, though they help you grow in Christ. But what Paul says here is that they are an accurate picture of our heart. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7 that he was almost deceived into thinking that he could be a good enough person. He could go back to the good old days by living out the law to such a way that he could be saved. But Paul says this one about coveting wasn't about behavior modification. It was about the heart. It was about the heart. It showed him that even when he made himself obey the commandments like a good religious boy in those good old days, his heart wanted all the kinds of things that were offensive to God. And the commandments, especially this last commandment, drove the Apostle Paul, the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, to Jesus himself. So what does it mean to covet? Is it okay to long for the good old days nationally as a culture or personally as an individual? How do I tell if I'm doing this? And what does the church do about this thing called coveting? Well, the big idea is very simple today. Very, very simple, very straightforward. It says you can glance over the fence and crave someone else's life. Or you can tell yourself that God, the God of the Bible has blessed you in many ways you never could have earned or never could have deserved. And aren't we entering a season where coveting is probably at the top of the list? Okay, be honest. Many of you coveted Black Friday sales to, to a bad degree, right? Be honest. It's okay. And so the guys are shaking heads and the, the ladies are saying yes. It's okay in that sense to, to admit that. But, we, you know, several years ago, Royals fans, we were coveting being the World Series champions. And now we're okay for 30 more years, right? <laughs> KU football fans, you're still coveting your third or fourth win in football, but that's another thing. Being content, folks, is countercultural. Being content is counterintuitive. It's not found in putting yourself at the center. It's not found in making yourself something that you're not. It is sad when people are content in life without Jesus at the center, isn't it? It is sad in a culture, in this time of year especially, where we often say Jesus is the reason for the season, and he is. He's a, the reason for every moment of every day. But that even for a season, we see our culture at its worst. $63 billion will be spent between now and Christmas. Isn't that amazing? $63 billion? Friends, I'm not saying gift giving is sinful. Please don't hear that. But our culture has so made us covet, want so much more than what God has given us that we often forget what the word says. So where are we going today? Tenth commandment is this. It is thou shalt not covet. So we're going to answer that question first off in the outline here. We're going to answer what is coveting. We're going to look at that very, very briefly. And then I'm going to ask you to turn actually away from Exodus to a story that many of you know, the story of Tamar and Abnon in 2 Samuel 13. And look at three things that happen when you covet. It literally makes you sick. It leads to life-altering decisions and doesn't satisfy you at all. So with that in mind, will you join me in standing if you're able this morning? We are going to read one verse, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And then later we'll move over to 2 Samuel 13. And this is coming from the English Standard Version, the copy of the Bible in the pew. And if you don't have a Bible, just let me say before we read, there is a, a blue Bible there. We're on page 61, chapter 20, verse 17. Big number 20, small number 17. 
And the Bible says this, God's Word. It says, and I have to get to the right page, that would be helpful too. Verse 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let me read that again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We join me in prayer as we go before the Lord today. Father, there's so many examples we could use to open up this illustration of coveting about lies. Father, whether it is longing for a life that we once thought we could have or did have or successes or whatever it may be. Father, it could be as simple as just wanting a, a someone else's shirt because it looks nice on them. It must look nice on me. Father, this is so deep in so many ways and so many practical things. Yet, Father, we pray we are not just more better law-keeping people today. We pray that our hearts, above all things, as Paul saw, are set to obey you through keeping this commandment, not just to keep the commandment. Father, help us today. We confess our sins. We know we have sinned even this day. But Lord, we, we, we also agree with you that you are the Savior who has forgiven us past, present, and future of all sins, only in your name. So Lord, be with us as we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, guys. Thank you so much. So what is coveting? What does that mean? That's a great question, and I want to spend just a few moments there as we begin our study of what is coveting itself. The definition is very straightforward, and I'll just read it straight off my notes here. Covetousness, coveting, is when you crave something you don't have. You feel unhappy that you don't have it, or you resent other people for having the thing that you want. It's more than being like, hey, dude, nice car. Or, you know, you saw the donkey and the ox there. It's better. It's not like saying, I drive a Pinto, uh, uh, you guys, and I want the Pinto. Or you drive a Lamborghini, I want the Lamborghini. Or you want our minivan. It's not that simple. Or, hey, you have a nice wife. It's when you literally feel a dissatisfaction because you don't have something someone else has. It could be their job, it could be their success, it could be their reputation, it could be their money, their body, their looks the ring they have on their finger or don't have, whatever it is. The reformer Martin Luther said that covetousness is simply a state of discontentment. It's trying to figure out how to get that thing or secretly being mad and boiling over in your heart because someone else has it. But it all comes back, friends. It all comes back to idols. We said that from the beginning. Every commandment goes back to idols. What is an idol? An idol is whatever your heart loves or delights in, what it depends on, or what you obey. That is your idol. For some, that is money. For some, that is sexual gratification. For some, that is power and prestige. For some, that is getting their name in the book that says, good job, you're on the honor roll. I don't know. There's a million examples you could use. But whatever you love and crave most is your idol, and you will be discontent without them, and you'll long for them and resent others who have them. And the opposite of coveting is contentment. Have you ever known someone in your life who is content with where they are in life? I don't know. I, I really struggle to think about that this week. It is hard to find someone that is okay with who they are, okay with the money they receive, and okay with that. You say, well, Darren, isn't it okay to strive to get that promotion or to, to be a better man or be a better father or, more importantly, a better Christian? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that so long as the Lord leads. But some people are so content that just like Paul, they can say, whether I have much or little, 
I am content with that because Philippians 4.13, do you know that verse? I can do all things through who? Christ, who strengthens me. That's not a verse to make you Superman and jump off a building and fly. That's a verse that means you can be content in every circumstance. But coveting was behind the very first sin. Think about this. Eden, the Garden of Eden, Eve coveted. She wanted, she longed after that fruit. God said, you can have everything else you want. And what did she do like any of us would have done? Oh, hey, that's a good one. God said not to do it. Let's go do it. And she ate of it. And Eve wanted that. She coveted it. Why did she do that? Because God was not enough for her. Her relationship with the Lord was not enough for her. She didn't trust him for what he had given her, and she longed for other things. Friends, catch this. This is so, so important. The command against idolatry bookends the commandments. We've said that. The first command, no other gods. The last command, no other coveting. It goes back to a very interesting New Testament word. I'm going to say the Greek word. I'm not one of those preachers that's trying to impress you with Greek words. It's not my point. But you need to hear this word because it makes so much sense. The Greek word for coveting is epithumia. Epithumia. It literally can get lost in the English translation. We translate it often as lust. And when I say lust, we say the word sex, sexual lust. And yes, I said that word in church twice today already. It is there. But in Greek, epithumia literally means a craving, a longing, a desire that drives everything that you do. For some politicians, and I'm not speaking of any present or past, I'm just speaking in general. For some politicians, it is literally having that power and prestige that gets them on that ballot box. They will sacrifice morals, they will sacrifice families, they will sacrifice anything because they covet, crave to be that person in charge of whatever district or whatever place. Epithumia, coveting is desiring something we feel we just have to have. I'm sure no parents here have ever left the checkout line without a kid saying, Mom, I have to have that chocolate bar. You know, Or our kids, uh, right now it is uh, Scarlett, bless her heart, she has a bag of buddies that she takes. She, we, she cannot get out of the, the, the crib, and she cannot go in the crib unless all the buddies are in the bag. She craves that bag more than you know. Well, what I'd like to invite you to do as we define what coveting is, is if you'll flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel is just a few books to your right in your Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 13. And this is a story that many, I'm just going to be honest, this is a story that many churches skip over because it seems to be non-practical to our day today. But what you're going to see, and maybe you've never heard this story before, is that it plainly puts out how coveting works and how we can fight against it by seeing the example. This is about David's son, Abnom. And Abnom, I'll sum it up for you. Abnom had a huge crush on his stepsister. And no, this is not a joke about any certain states that we would say that about in today's society. It sounds a little backwoods. But you know that's the way they did things back in that day. David had several wives. And because of that, the girl, this girl Tamar, from one of David's other wives, wasn't considered gross back then, even though, yes, technically they were sister, uh, stepsister and brother at that point. Amnon wants to have a relationship with her that is intimate. And to do that, he's willing to sacrifice everything. Second Samuel chapter 13, how does coveting work? And three results of it. Start there in verse 1, and, and, and here it is. We'll read verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnom, David's son, loved her. Notice that he, the writer emphasizes this is David's son. He knows this is wrong. Twice he mentions that. And after a time, Abnom, David's son, loved her. And Abnom was so tormented, verse 2, that he made himself sick or ill because of his sister Tamar. 
for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her or do anything to get her. Friends, the first thing you need to know about coveting, the result of coveting, is that it literally makes you sick. Literally. Did you notice what it said about Amnon there? It said that he was so beside himself sick because he wanted this relationship with Tamar. Have you ever felt like that about something? Honestly? I, I, I was trying to think of personal examples, and I, I, I'm sure there are, but have you ever been so sick with worry that you want something so bad that you may not be able to get it because obstacles you didn't plan for jumped in your way? Or you find yourself getting envying others? Sometimes you look and you say, you know, I just got to have that. I just got to get that very thing. And we often give these desires sanitized names. You know, it's like taking out the hand sanitizer and wiping it off before we say it. We call them goals. We call them dreams. We call them corporate plans or destiny or deepest longings. But friends, what those are at the base often is epithumia. It's coveting. It's craving something. Look, there's nothing wrong with the thing that you're desiring necessarily unless it's sinful. It's just that you put so much weight on it. We put so much weight on those things that we can't be happy without it, and it becomes God to us, and we're driven by it. Look, you can covet what you don't have by thinking you'd be happy without a certain thing or resenting others for having a thing. But get this, you can also covet what you already have, what God has already given you. Maybe it's just being married, or, or, or well, let me say it this way. Is there, something in, is there something you're worried about losing so much? If a hailstorm came down and totally wrecked your car and you had liability insurance and you had to pay out of pocket for that Lamborghini with liability insurance, if that's what you do with your Lamborghini, please give it to me. I will make sure it has good insurance next time. But if you got so sick because your Lamborghini was hailed on and that's something you have, that would be considered coveting with possessions you already have. Or is there something you hang on dear to in this life that you just can't let go of? For Amnon, what he thinks he needs most is Tamar. Maybe you've got someone like that in your life. Single people, maybe it's just being married in general. I remember those days. I was a, a young pastor, and every old lady in my former church tried to set me up with every young lady they knew in their circle of influence and friends. And thankfully, I went to Oklahoma, and God found me a good mate. But some of you can't imagine being happy without uh, being a, a, a life without singleness, basically. That is coveting. For many of you, it may be money. You couldn't be happy making any more money than, than can possibly satisfy all your needs. But how much is much more? Do you need 10000 more? Is it $500 a month more? Is it $20,000 more? Is it, what is it? Where, where does it stop? Because I know we all love to make money, or if we got this, we could just get their sort of attitude. But here's another question. Do you find yourself constantly looking at what other people have, the houses they live in, the places they eat, CeCe's Pizza, their vacations they go on, and being jealous of that. You have to ask yourself that in the heart. Or, friends, I, I really thought about this one, because, but I really want to hit this home. And it, Please hear this from our heart of love, but are you in credit card debt? That debt is a sure sign of coveting, because in order to get that lifestyle you want, you have to spend at a rate that you can't make. And we often, we really should rename Visa, MasterCard, and American Express coveting cards instead of credit cards. And I think it would make a whole lot more sense. Or here's another one. Are you a generous person? Are, are you a sure sign that you covet as you're not generous with your money? Now, I'm all about saving. I think you need to be wise in your saving and, and doing that to plan for your family and, and emergencies. 
but you just can't see giving any money away. You don't give anything to the church because you see that money is how you get all the things that you want. This is not a plug to give money to the church, but it's asking your heart that question. Why am I holding on to this if I'm holding on to it? Or you put a little tithe in the offering plate and you say, I hope you appreciate this. God bless me. Use that in my way. Are you worried financially about the future? Chances are you covet money. And like Amnon, you are sick with worry. Friends, the application point out of this I think we take is that a healthy church is a community of sin-sick people following Jesus together and slowly getting healthier. Because we could go on and on and on, couldn't we, about this list? It really could. But the grace of God is, is that we are doing this together. Friends, we get a chance to worship the Lord, the greatest treasure of all, better than anything else we could ever covet or know in our lives. We get that chance to do it together. That's why coming to church is so important to you. It's not just so we can make another check mark on the, the, the annual report for the Southern Baptist Convention numbers. Look, those numbers are great. We need to take numbers, whatever. But we don't want you here just to be a, a warm body. We want you here to be accountable one to another, to share your life, to, to give your life, because you're going to need that at times. And the odd thing about it is what we're going to see is Abnon had someone in his life who didn't hold him accountable to what God would hold him accountable to. He said, look, you want it? Go after it and get it. And that's a scary thing. Friends, you are here today because you need to be, as I need to be, reminded each week that this world is not enough. It's never going to be enough, but Christ is. But Christ is. What is it that you covet? Is it someone else's marriage? I know this sounds really morbid, but do you ever sit around? And I've had someone tell me this before. They've sat around wishing they were married to someone else or that their, their, uh, their spouse would die a premature death so they could marry someone else, Christians. Maybe that's what you fantasize about. Maybe you, you know, we're in the holidays. Maybe you covet having a close family. Maybe your family doesn't get together like other families do. And I remember this as a kid. Uh, do you constantly feel hurt and let down by your family members? Maybe you do. How many times did you argue over politics, religions, and things you're not supposed to bring up at Thanksgiving? And that may answer that question. You might be a coveter. Are you irritated, perhaps, at other people's success that you've been overlooked where they have been given grace? Friends, you might be a coveter. You might be a coveter. For Amnon, his coveting that made him sick was literally a naked Tamar, if I can be so frank. So he and his other cousin, Jonadab, and this is where it gets really scary, come up with a plan. He fakes being sick. And when his dad comes to say, why are you sick? He says, can you bring me some chicken soup and biscuits? No, he didn't ask that. He says, dad, can I have Tamar come in and help me out? And he goes on and David basically says, sure, I'll send her down your way. Do you want your mom? Are you sure? No, send me Tamar. Okay, let's go on with the story. Look at chapter 13, verse 7. And I want you to see that coveting not only makes you sick, but it literally leads to life-altering decisions. Verse 7 through 14. It says, Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother's Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took the dough, kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, and he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Verse 11. But she brought them near to eat. He took hold of her and said, Come lie with me. My sister, she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. 
do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. And verse 14, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated and lay with her. Friends, I know this is a very in-your-face thing, but do you see how literally coveting can make you have life-altering decisions? Amnon knows and does something here that's not only wrong, it's plain-out stupid. Because he knows he can't get away with it. But isn't that what coveting does? Don't when we want something so bad, we are willing to do whatever it takes, no matter the consequence? It's exactly what happened here. And some of you are being ruined by your desire for money so much, whether it's credit card debt or, or whatever it is, that you are willing to trade your values at work to sacrifice to gain a little extra on the paycheck that will help pay a bill. Think about the rich young ruler. In Matthew chapter 19, we have people in this place, uh, in that place, he didn't want to sacrifice all of his money as Christ told him to. He went away sad. Girls in here, young or old, may be making terrible relationship decisions because you covet the attention of a guy. You're with a guy you shouldn't be with and doing things you shouldn't be doing. Some of you crave the approval of others that you really do dumb things so that you'll think people will make you cool or feel that you're cool. You're obsessed with what people think. You're obsessed with all those things. We're obsessed with images in today's world. You'll do anything to be accepted and do that very thing. And coveting desires us to do that. And verse 15, look, look at what he says. He makes this dumb decision. And then look at Amnon, verse 15, folks. He says, then Amnon hated her with a great hatred. So that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Girls, could I just make sure you see this quickly, young or old? I don't mean to play daddy here, but something here needs to be said. Our culture teaches young ladies today that to give in to a guy, you will earn his love. But friends, that is not how it works, is it? Not at all. When, you, when that man is coveting your body, after he uses it for his desires, he's going to do exactly what Amnon did here to Tamar. He's going to get bored with you and despise you. He may say all types of sweet things to keep you in your ear, but really, if he loved you, he'd wait for you. And really, if he loved you, he'd submit his desires to what's best for you, and he'd wait to have sex with you. That is the plain, honest truth. Right now, that man may look at another lady like a pack of cigarettes that he smokes for a little bit, on the, what's on the inside and throws away the package. And friends, that is exactly what happened to Tamar. Exactly. The second point shows us that we make life-altering decisions. Adam's going to put it up there for you. The application point is simply this, friends. Many of you have those past regrets, but no matter what your past regrets or choices are, aren't you thankful today that God's grace not only offers forgiveness, but a joy of a fresh start with new beginnings? Aren't you grateful for that, Christian? If you've coveted today, Christ has redeemed you and given you a second chance. You may be on repair physically speaking in this world's eyes, but in God's eyes, there's never an addiction. There's never a covetousness that is not able to be overcome by God's grace. It is an ocean to your pond every time, a tidal wave that rushes over you. What a great God we serve. What an awesome, awesome God that we serve. And friends, that's the last piece. We have seen quickly here that Literally, coveting makes you sick. It leads to life-altering decisions. But the last thing I want you to see is it just doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't satisfy us at all. 
Look back at verse, uh, we'll be in actually verse 15. That light, we'll expound on that in verse 15. Friends, what I want you to see today, though, is your coveting will never satisfy. Only Christ can. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, theologian and philosopher, although we would agree with some of his theology, even as Baptist, said this. He said, there are those who realize that they're never going to have what they want, so they give up and they get better, get bitter rather in life. They get cynical. And then, secondly, he said, there's another kind of unhappy person, and that's the person who has obtained what they're seeking in life, and it's let the, left them wanting more. There's those who realize they'll never get what they desire, and there's those who've gotten what they desire and found out it doesn't do for them what they thought it would do. Sounds like every new car purchase that you have, doesn't it? It really does. Friends, most of us live in the middle ground between those two. Never quite having attained what we want, but still thinking it's possible. If I just work hard enough, if I just knock on enough doors, if I just whatever, friends, that's just an illusion. We always think it's right around the corner, but we never quite get there. This is not to rain on your parade to be an ambitious person in life. You should set goals, but have you prayed about those goals? Have you checked those goals and dreams and ambitions that you have with what God has said in his word about your life and where he is headed with you? An idol is like heroin. It really is. It is nice at first. It gives you a high, but after a while you want more and it controls you and eventually can kill you if it goes that far. Again, where do you think the elusive, contented, happy place is? For some of you, you may say, if I can ever, where I don't have to worry about making ends meet, I'll have a little extra cash just to enjoy life. Darren, that's a good life. That's a good life, Pastor. Some of you may say, when I don't have to work so much. Well, amen. That's the, <laughs> blame Adam and Eve for that. That's a sin of the curse. Some of you may say, I can give that happy, contented life when I get married. If I can just get married, I'm going to go to college, and I'm not going to get an economics degree or a communications degree. Darren, I'm getting my MRS degree, my Mrs. degree. And that's what I'm out to get, and then I'll be happy. Some of you say, I'll be happy when we have kids. You know what? We love our kids, but they don't make us happy all the time, do they? God love them. They don't. Seminary guys, and this is a ministry idol, when I finally get that big church, man, I've made it, I've arrived. Or when I preach at that conference, when I write that book, and my name is plastered on there, that is hogwash. When I have finally written something that makes a mark on my field, I am all good to go. Or when I hit in LinkedIn, many of you are on LinkedIn, the professional site, when I hit 500 connections on LinkedIn and it says, it can't even number my connections, I'm just so good. Or if I have as many Facebook friends as Gilbert and Beery, we joke with them all the time about this. These are silly examples, but you know this drives us sometimes. Friends, I want to give you this practical application here, and here it is, Adam will put it up. Every beautiful, satisfying, created thing is designed to be a finger pointing you to the one true God who alone can satisfy your heart. Isn't that true? It is not what you are thankful for, it's who you're thankful to. That is what the message of Thanksgiving is all about. Look, are you content with where you are right now? Could you stay that way? If you're not, then you're coveting. Can I tell you what's wrong with most marriages? Most marriages are founded on coveting. I mean, think about this. You get married because you thought being with that person could fix all your problems, right? If anything, they've exacerbated your problems because they really see you for who you are. You were lonely, you were insecure, and this person came along and rescued you. I am not, this next person you're going to see on the screen, I do not, I'm just using her as an example, but Katy Perry has a song from a few years ago called Teenage Dream, where she says, quote, when I found you, you brought me to life. 
I finally found you, my missing puzzle piece. I am complete. Man, I could write these lyrics and make millions of dollars, couldn't you? Or if Alabama, if you're into that type of music, Alabama said, well, you say, I don't like that newfangled music. Well, here's Alabama, secular music. There's no way I can make it without you, they said in one of their famous songs. Friends, we think that other people, other things, all these different things will make us satisfied, but they don't. The only one that can satisfy you is Christ. If you're not a Christian here today, I'm not telling you, as most preachers will today, that if you have all these good things in your life and you add Jesus on, then your life is going to be complete. Friends, your life is not complete unless you have Jesus at the center of everything. He is what it's all about. There's nothing more. There's nothing left. It is Him or nothing else. So what do I do? What do I do? You have to realize that He is better and more lasting than anything this world will ever offer you. What, think about this for a second. What is on your Christmas wish list? Have you made your list out yet? Some of you grandparents, you have had wish lists for 50 years and they still haven't been satisfied because you, you're, you're still buying for your kids. I know. My parents are in that boat too. But what is on your Christmas wish list? If you could have that greatest thing, what is it? Friends, if it's not knowing Christ better and making him known, then our heart is not set on the right place. And I say this looking at all back to myself as your pastor. So what do you do? You realize that he is better and more lasting than anything in this world. Friends, I've listed several here. I just want to read through these. God is better than sex. Jesus never had sex, and he was the most full and complete human who ever lived. Sex is simply a shadow of our intimacy with God. Sex points us to a relationship and a pleasure with the one God that makes sex seem like a yawn you have when you're really tired after eating turkey all day. God is better than human love. You and I have never been loved and cherished like we are when the Son of God went to the cross to rescue us and died for our sins. All human companionship, all human love, even in marriage, will let us down. doesn't mean you shouldn't get married, but nothing can satisfy us with the safety and tenderness except through Christ alone. God is better than pleasure. He is better than the source of all pleasure. Man, I was just thinking about this. What I, you know, in my sports-minded guy mind, that old guy mind, Lord, what if the Missouri Tigers won the, Missouri, the national football championship? The Royals couldn't lose a game. And the Chiefs, they beat the Patriots, and they won the Super Bowl. I mean, whoo, uh, where else can we go? Do we have a hockey team with the Mavericks? You know, that, what if they won whatever league they're in, minor leagues? I mean, run the list. And they won it forever and ever and ever and ever. It would get boring after a while, wouldn't it? You ever played a kid in a board game and beat him 20 times? It gets boring after a while. Admittedly, it does, even though you love him. Friends, there's nothing that can satisfy us pleasure-wise. It is in Christ that we have that. God is better than any earthly power. There's no greater power you can have than to know that you belong to God and that He directs you for His good purposes according to His will. God is better than popularity. Fame is a pipe dream if you're only known by a bunch of people who are nobodies. But we are to be known and we are known and honored by God of the universe. And there is nothing better than that. A.W. Tozer said, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in him. And John Piper, who, if you've ever watched a John Piper sermon, he's like an acrobat up here. He's got his arms flailing everywhere, but he gets excited in this part of his sermon. He says this, and I can't do my best Piper voice, but he says this verbatim, and on and on it goes. Everything the world has to offer, God is better and more abiding. There is no compassion, no comparison. God wins every time. See, I told you there's no comparison to that. You say, well, as we close, let me say this. Some of you may say, well, pastor, that sounds a little unrealistic. Just be happy in Jesus. I mean, come on, I got bills to pay. I, I've got kids to raise. And Darren, you have kids. You know how this goes. And, 
you know, uh, my job's not always how it should be. I mean, doesn't it sound, Pastor, just a little too pie in the sky to believe that there is no way to be happy except to be happy in Jesus? Yeah, it does sound a little pie in the sky, friends. I'll be honest with you about that. It really, really does. But the story right around at the time that these commandments came out was God was teaching them about coveting. Let's remember our context for the Ten Commandments. These Israelites had come out of Egypt hungry. They started to complain, and they wanted to go back, and they could have fish and meat and the good life and slavery in Egypt, and they just got mad. So God sent them manna. And when he sent them manna, those little frosted mini-wheats that came down from heaven, if you want to use that as an example, they fell from the sky, and he fed them day and night. And the point of the whole thing was to them is that God knows your need and he'll supply it. He created you. He knows you. He, he knows you have bills. He knows you have desires. He knows you want to get married and have a family. He knows, but do you trust him alone to meet those needs? In the New Testament, Jesus was a perfect example of this. John 6, he looked at that manna, Jesus said, and he said, this was the picture of me. I am the bread and life from heaven that will satisfy your souls. Friends, is Christ enough for you this holiday season? Let me be very clear. I am not saying it is wrong for you to give gifts. We, we bought gifts last night because we're getting pregnant. And thank God for Amazon Prime because that sends gifts quickly and to people all over the world for free shipping. It is not wrong to gift give. But in your heart of hearts, is Christ enough for you? Is he enough? That is the big question. Many of you are in need right now financially. Things are tough. You don't have the money to do the things you'd like. You don't want to be single. And didn't God, you know, Pastor, didn't God say it was better to be single because your attention is not divided? Yeah, he said that, 1 Corinthians 7. But for a time, God may have you fast for something you could really use or enjoy. And during a time like that, he may want you to feast on him where you say, God, you are good. You are better to me than money. You are better to me, Lord, than food, romance, children, health, prosperity, friendships, or successes. You are enough. Lord, I trust you. You will get me through this. You will. And as the Looney Tunes used to say, friends, that's all, folks. It really is. Where do we end our series with these commandments? Can I, let me just ask you 10 questions before we go. Friends, are you an idolater? Do you entertain rival conceptions of God? Do you ever not properly bring honor to God, the third commandment? Does your life demonstrate total trust by giving him what he asks for, a day of rest and the resources? Have you always been submissive to authority? Have you always valued the lives of others and loved them like your own? Have you lived sexually in a way that fits with God's plans, both mentally, in your mind, on your internet, and in life, physically? Have you lived a life of generosity, of giving, or of one of exploitation and taking? Or have you always been characterized by honesty and blessing? That was the ninth commandment. And today, have you always been content in your Christian life, satisfied with God and the place he's given you in life? You know, 1 John 1, 8 says, if we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. Friends, look back at Exodus chapter 20. If you'll flip there very quickly, I'll end with this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, the last two verses here. I want you to see, after reading these Ten Commandments, what the Israelites did. This is so important to see as we close. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, it says this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we 
die. Moses said to the people, Don't fear, for God has come to you to test you, and the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick of the darkness where God was. The people recognized how badly they failed the test. They recognized and knew they could never stand before God. God is holy. So they asked Moses, but Moses couldn't do it. Moses had sin as well. And you Bible scholars who have been around a long time know that Moses was not allowed in the promised land. He got mad and smashed the rock. Friends, the law points forward to Jesus. That's been our whole study. Jesus would come and live a sinless life in full obedience to the law. Yet at the end of his life, he was punished, crucified for our sins, and now we call this the great exchange. If you're not a Christian here today, the only way you go to heaven is by believing Christ died, he was enough, he took your punishment, he was buried, resurrected, and he came back again. That is the only way to be saved. If you are a Christian here today, as we go through and you reflect on the Ten Commandments, maybe you learn, I hope you learned some new stuff, I really hope you do, I did. But I hope you ask at the end of the study and this Christmas season and all year this question, Lord, is my heart set on just following commandments to be a good moral person? Or Lord, is my heart set on following your commandments because you gave your life for me? If you haven't seen that difference yet, ask God to open your heart if you will. Will you pray with me as we close?